I don't think I'll ever forget that one of our elders at the church, Art, uh, told me years ago uh, that before he moved up to the high desert, this was probably 30 years ago at least, uh, he was down the hill serving as an elder at a church down there. And there was this certain elders meeting uh, where this discussion began and tensions started to rise. And there were two men at the table in particular sitting across the conference table from each other that started to really get upset with each other. And so the the tension rose and the voices got louder and words started to be exchanged. And finally, one guy stood up from his chair and pulled a Miles Finch. Remember this guy from Elf? He climbs up on the table and proceeds to climb over to clean the other elder's clock. The other elders had to intervene and hold him back so there wouldn't be a fistfight in their elders meeting. I remember my pastor years ago told our congregation, he said, you know what? My wife and I, we don't argue. We just have intense fellowship. (laughs) Well, I I think that at this elders meeting, uh, that fellowship was way too intense. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I've heard of churches having this kind of intense fellowship, but that one, I think, has to take the cake. Not exactly church fellowship at its finest, is it? Similarly, if you have a church family, sooner or later, uh, you're going to argue with another brother or sister in Christ about something. You're going to find yourself arguing about the church budget, maybe about whether or not the church should move to another location, maybe about which uh, is the best, uh, which is the, the biggest slacker uh, in their prayer life in the church. Uh, at home, sooner or later, you're going to have some scuffles and arguments uh, with someone else, maybe with your wife, maybe with one of your kids or one of your parents. Uh, You're going to scuffle maybe about the bills or who's supposed to do the dishes, maybe about who left the toilet seat up. There are any number of things that we get into arguments about. So that's natural. It's to a large extent unavoidable. You don't live with a clone of yourself and you don't go to church with a clone of yourself. So there's bound to be some arguing and some conflict along the way. So whether that arguing and conflict is at home or at church, it can be toxic and destructive, or it can be healthy and constructive. I don't know about you, but I prefer, I choose, healthy and constructive. Let's learn how to do it this morning. This morning we're going to turn to Acts chapter 15, take a closer look at two unexpected arguments and conflicts in the life of the early Christian church. God's Word is going to teach us how to deal with arguments and infighting in a way that is both healthy and constructive, and most importantly of all, will bring glory to Almighty God through Jesus Christ. So let's open to Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1, looking at the first conflict of two uh, that is addressed in this chapter. We're going to start in Acts chapter 15, once again beginning in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria, Paul and Barnabas' home church. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. 
So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the backs of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our hearts today. Over the past couple months, we've seen here in the book of Acts that Paul and Barnabas' ministry was absolutely groundbreaking. In Acts 11, the city of Antioch in Syria became the new launch pad for Christianity. It was in Antioch uh, where Jesus' followers began sharing the gospel, not just with Jews or those that were God-fearers that practiced Judaism to some extent, they began sharing there in Antioch the gospel of Jesus Christ with Greeks, uh, men and probably even women who had never stepped foot in a synagogue, men and women who probably had been on their weekends involved in prostitution and involved in idol worship and all sorts of sinful things. They began reaching out to these complete pagans. And as they did, remember what happened. They were called Christians first there in that city of Antioch. The church there in Antioch of Syria became the launch pad for world missions. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the church in Antioch and sent on the mission field to spread Jesus' salvation on the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas' hometown, homeland. 
on the mainland of Asia Minor, which was more in Paul's neck of the woods. They went there after Cyprus and especially focused on the region of Galatia. And as we've studied in Acts chapters 13 and 14 over the past few weeks, we've seen the amazing results of their mission, both on the island of Cyprus and in the mainland cities of Perga and Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Paul and Barnabas led both Jews and Gentiles to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul and Barnabas planted healthy, self-sustaining churches there in each city. And as we saw last week, having Jewish Christians in the new churches was a strength. After all, they knew the Old Testament scriptures really well. They already lived moral lives and prioritized prayer and fasting and giving to the poor. But here in Acts 15, we discover that some Jewish Christians actually did more harm than good in these early years of Christianity. You see, some of these Jewish Christians didn't understand this simple truth of the gospel. Salvation is by God's grace through faith alone. It's not by good works. Salvation is not by Jewish religion. For one reason or another, it it didn't sink in. Moses can't save anyone from their sins. The Old Testament law can't save anyone from their sins. Circumcision can't save anyone from their sins. Only Jesus Christ himself can save someone from their sins. That's why he came. If there was some other way to be saved, then he was a fool for coming to earth and even more of a fool for dying on the cross. The only reason he did it was because there was no other way. He was the only spotless, sinless lamb that could completely cover sin from now and through the end of time. That's why he came. The Old Testament law is simply a neon arrow pointing forward to Jesus Christ. According to verse 1, some men made the 300-mile trip from Jerusalem to Antioch. When they arrived, they started attending the Christian church there in Antioch, and they began teaching the Gentile Christians, unless you are circumcised, then you cannot be saved. Male circumcision was the sign of the old covenant that God had made with Moses and the nation of Israel. Evidently, these Jewish Christians believed that if a man refused to be circumcised, he was refusing to be a part of God's chosen people. The people of Israel. So if he was refusing to be Jewish, he was cut off from God and was going to go to hell. That's what they seem to have believed. Look at verse 2. It says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. I bet it did. These guys are running around, pulling the rug out from underneath all that Paul and Barnabas have been risking their lives to teach. That salvation is for all men and women, all teens and all children, no matter if they're Jewish or non-Jewish, Greek or non-Greek. It doesn't matter. Jesus Christ and his gift of salvation is offered to all freely through faith by grace. Well, the Jewish legalist said, Gentile men, you have to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas answered back, no, you don't. The Jewish legalist answered back, yes, you do. Paul and Barnabas answered back a little more emphatically, no, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. And so it went on 
and on. Well, they were at an impasse. Both sides were digging in their heels, refusing to budge. So how does the church handle this sharp dispute and debate, as it's called? Well, they decide to take the matter to the apostles and Jerusalem elders. At that time, the Jerusalem apostles and elders were the closest thing that the Christian church had to a Supreme Court. (laughs) They were the closest thing, so they needed to go get some impartial Uh, wise advice from these seasoned Christian leaders there in Jerusalem. Well, verse 5, after arriving there in Jerusalem, it says the Jewish legalists stand up and say, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Next, the apostle Peter stands up and shares his eyewitness account of how the Holy Spirit had saved a family full of uncircumcised Gentiles back in Acts chapter 10. Then Paul and Barnabas stand up and share how uh, powerfully God's Spirit had moved through them on the mission field, especially up there in Galatia. Finally, James, the half-brother of Jesus who pastored the Jerusalem church, he stands up and he suggests a brilliant compromise. James reiterates what Peter, Paul, and Barnabas had pointed out. Salvation has nothing to do with circumcision or Old Testament law keeping. Salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Say that with me. Salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Never forget that. Well, that was music to the Gentile Christian's ears. But James throws the Jewish legalists a bone. He proposes four simple rules that the Gentile Christians should follow so they don't offend the Jewish Christians in their church or sabotage their mission to their Jewish neighbors who desperately need to accept Christ. You can see these four simple rules down in verse 29. Number one, abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Number two, abstain from food with blood in it. Number three, abstain from the meat of strangled animals. And finally, number four, abstain from sexual immorality. The early Christians ate a lot of meals together. And the wise Christian leaders in Jerusalem realized that if the Gentile Christians didn't respect at least a few of the main Jewish kosher dietary laws, that would cause a destructive rift in the church. And would impede their outreach to Jews who needed to get saved. Remember what Paul would later write about sacrificing our own personal preferences and freedoms for the sake of a weaker brother. He says, you know what? If eating meat will cause my brother to stumble, I'll never eat it again. Paul said, I become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. So is there anything inherently wrong with, uh, with food, with blood in it? Those of you who like your steaks medium rare, you'll be happy to hear, no, there isn't. <laughs> is there anything inherently wrong with the meat of a strangled animal? Uh, no, there isn't. But for the Jews who were serious about their kosher dietary laws, it would cause them to stumble if those Gentile Christians engaged in the frivolous eating of things that were anathema to someone who had been raised Jewish. 
And so these wonderful guidelines are given. Four is a a no-brainer. Don't engage in sexual immorality. That's all over both the Old and New Testaments. That's completely inappropriate for anyone who follows Jesus Christ. But those first three in particular are done for the sake of Christian fellowship, unity in the church, and for the sake of reaching out to Jews who desperately needed Jesus Christ. So the church leaders came up with this brilliant compromise. The integrity of the gospel was defended. Salvation is never by works or by obeying the Old Testament. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So the Jewish Christians had to stop polluting the gospel with legalism. But the Gentiles had to give up something too. They had to surrender some of their personal freedoms for the good of the Jews around them. As best we can tell, both the Jewish and Gentile Christians responded with humility and grace. And as a result, according to verses 31 through 33, the church in Antioch was encouraged and strengthened and at peace. Isn't that good? They were going like this at the beginning of the chapter. But by the time they get to the end of that council, they are encouraged, they're being strengthened, and they're at peace. Arguments are not sinful if we handle them in a godly way. This is a beautiful example of a disagreement in the church, an argument in the church, an argument and a disagreement over a very serious matter, the nature of salvation. But it was resolved in a way that encouraged, strengthened, and brought peace to the church. You see, wonderful things happen in and around our homes and our church when we handle our arguments and conflicts and infighting with humility and wisdom and grace. Now, let's take a look at conflict number two in verses 35 through 41. This conflict resolves, kind of revolves, I should say, around this question, uh, should he stay or should he go now? (laughs) Let's take a closer look at that beginning in verse 35. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch of Syria, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. To me, this is one of the saddest moments in the life of Paul. It really is. The moment when two heroes of our faith, Paul and Barnabas, have a big old knockdown, drag out fight. They have this huge old argument. They both dig in their heels. They refuse to budge. And as a result, they part ways. And as far as we can tell, Paul and Barnabas never do ministry together again. It's pretty shocking when you think about it. Paul and Barnabas made an amazing team 
They made a great team. Back in chapter 11, remember, they did some amazing ministry in their home church of Antioch in Syria. They led great numbers of people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and they taught a great number of people uh, the ways of the Lord. It was a wonderful thing what they did. And remember what happened in chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas uh, joined forces for their uh, missionary trip. And over the course of one to two years, they spread the gospel and they planted churches throughout Cyprus and Galatia. And boy, did they have some incredible adventures together. Together they battled the Jewish sorcerer Bar-Jesus there in that city of Paphos on the island of Cyprus. Together they scaled the 3,500-foot mountain peaks of the Pisidian mountain range as they went into that area of Galatia. Together they had gone into those towns of Pisidian Antioch where they were kicked out of town and given a cease and desist order. They went into Iconium where after a few weeks there was that mob forming that wanted to stone them. And then they went to Lystra where Paul was stoned, they thought, to the point of death, but... There, after dragging him out of town, remember, he stood up, brushed himself off, and there he was with Barnabas. There those two men were side by side as they turned around and walked right back into that city of Lystra. They planted churches in Lystra and Derbe and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch and Paphos. Uh, Even here in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are standing side by side against doctrinal heresy in Jerusalem. They proclaim the truth of the gospel. They help forge a healthy, God-honoring compromise that unifies the church and opens doors for more Jews and Gentiles to be saved. But after all of that, after all of that, it's sad to say the argument they have here at the end of Acts 15 tears their relationship apart. Their discussion starts out agreeable enough in verse 36. After Paul and Barnabas had been back home in Antioch, after coming back from Jerusalem, they were there in Antioch for a while. Paul says, hey, Barney, let's uh, let's head back to those churches that we planted in our first missionary trip. Let's go back to Cyprus. Let's go back to Galatian. Let's see how those Christians are doing and help strengthen those churches together. And Barnabas responds, great idea. I'm all in. And there's no doubt Paul and Barnabas agree on the mission. But the problem is they disagree about how who should be with them during that mission, who should be a part of their missionary team. So Barney says, hey, I'm all in. Let's go. Let's go visit these churches. Let's go strengthen those brothers. I can't wait to see some of those brothers and sisters again. But then he proceeds to say, let's take John Mark with us again. And Paul says, over my dead body. That guy's a turncoat. You know what happened, Barnabas? He jumped ship the first time we took him on a journey. He didn't even make it through a third of the trip. I'm not taking him. Now, man, we've got to have someone that's reliable on this team, not John Mark. There's a lot of guys that we could pick, but not him. Not him. Well, what does Barnabas say? Barnabas says, uh, John Mark is going. Paul says, no, he's not. Barnabas says, Yes, he is. Paul says, no, he's not. Barnabas digs in his heels and says, yes, he is. And that's final. And Paul says, is it now? He's not going. That is final. Hmm. Well, 
John Mark did have a track record of being unreliable. That's true, what Paul was thinking. So, his standpoint has some validity. It makes sense. But then there's Barnabas. Remember, his real given name was Joseph. Barnabas was this nickname given to him by the church. It meant son of encouragement. When the Christians years earlier in Jerusalem were scared of Paul after he'd converted to Christianity, remember, Barnabas brought him to the leaders. That's just what he did. He gave people second chances. He gave people the benefit of the doubt. So Barnabas' standpoint, yeah, John Mark screwed up, but you know what? what? He deserves a second chance, just like Paul, you deserved a second chance. Barnabas' perspective had some validity too. There's no doubt about it. Who was right? Paul or Barnabas? Who was wrong? Paul or Barnabas? In all likelihood, they were both right. And they were both wrong. I like how pastor and Bible scholar A.T. Robertson describes it. He says it this way. No one can rightly blame Barnabas for giving his cousin John Mark a second chance. Nor Paul for fearing to risk him again. One's judgment may go with Paul, but one's heart goes with Barnabas. It's a good way to put it, isn't it? One's judgment goes with Paul, one's heart goes with Barnabas. In our heads, we tend to agree with Paul. The mission was too important. The stakes were too high to risk having a proven quitter on the team. But in our hearts, we tend to agree with Barnabas. God is a God of second chances. We just focused on that a few weeks ago, a few Sundays ago here at Impact. He's a God of second chances. And Mark did deserve a second chance. Listen to Warren Wiersbe's insights. He writes, good and godly people in the church do disagree. This is one of the painful facts of life that we must accept. Paul looked at people and asked, what can they do for God's work? While Barnabas looked at people and asked, what can God's work do for them? Both questions are important to the Lord's work, and sometimes it is difficult to keep things balanced. Oh, how true that is. Head versus heart. Heart versus head. How difficult it is to keep things balanced. I am more of a thinker than I am a feeler. Some of you are more of a feeler than you are a thinker. Which of us is right? Which of us is wrong? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Not necessarily right or wrong, just different. It pains me to say this, but it seems clear to me that here in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, these two great heroes of our faith, Paul and Barnabas really screwed up. I take no joy in saying it, but I I, I can't escape this conclusion I've come to. They messed up. They weren't arguing over a moral issue. They weren't arguing over a theological or doctrinal issue. They were arguing over different perspectives and different opinions. And sadly, each missionary climbed on top of his high horse, dug in his heels, and let his temper get the best of him. Paul and Barnabas could have come to a God-honoring compromise like they had done with the Jewish legalists earlier in the chapter, but they didn't. And I believe God placed this incident in the Bible without sugarcoating it so that you and I don't make the same mistakes in our marriages, in our families, in our church that Paul and Barnabas made here. So let's tackle this key question. 
How do we argue in a way that honors God and nourishes relationships? I'd like to share with you three keys to doing so. Each of these biblically based and time tested keys will work in any of your relationships. This will work in your marriage. It'll work with your kids. It'll work in your workplace. It'll work at school and it'll definitely work at church. Sooner or later, you're going to find yourself in a big old argument with someone, someone you care about. And these three keys will help you handle yourself in a way that both honors Christ and doesn't cause a whole lot of collateral damage. So here we go. Key number one, be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. Sound familiar? I quote this verse very often from James chapter 1, verse 19. Everyone be sure of this. You need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. When I think about it, the most immature, toxic arguments I have had with my wife or my kids or with someone at church, when I think about it, almost every time I have to realize and admit that in those arguments that turn toxic, I talked too much. I listened too little, and I became angry way too quickly. Can you relate? We talk too much when arguments head south. We listen too little, and our tempers flare way too fast. Never forget, God gave you two ears and only one mouth for a reason. Maybe he's trying to give you a hint you need to listen more than you talk. Husbands, let's be honest with each other. A lot of times when our wives are talking to us, We're not really listening, are we? Be honest. Wives, be honest with yourself. So often when your husband is talking to you, in your mind you're thinking, this guy is a complete moron. I can't believe I married him. (laughs) And you start just tuning him out, right? (laughs) It's true. Parents, so often we don't listen. Really listen to our kids. Teenagers, so often you don't listen. Really listen to what your parents are saying. So often we don't really listen to our friends. We don't really listen to our neighbors. We don't really listen to our boss or to our coworkers or to our teachers at school. Sometimes here at church, we really don't listen to each other. This first key to dealing with disagreements is critical. When we find ourselves in a disagreement and tensions start to rise, we need To repeat these words in our minds and hearts like a broken record. Please do this. Remind yourself over and over. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. And slow to become angry. When I hear uh, that voice starting to elevate when I'm in an argument with someone I care about. And I, I can tell my tension is rising. And my blood pressure is going up. And I'm getting angry. I have to repeat And play again and again and again this broken record in my mind. Dane, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Oh, that's such a critical key for making sure that our arguments and disagreements with others remain civil, don't cause collateral damage, and don't strip God of the glory he deserves from that discussion. Key number two. Even if it seems to be out in left field, (laughs) work hard to see and understand the other person's point of view. Uh, This one also is really important. 
Do you realize that most of the time another Christian's point of view isn't sinful or stupid? It's just different. It's just different. Should we sing hymns or choruses? Uh, Which pastor is the best? Should we switch locations? Should we approve the church budget? Churches have actually spit, they've spit too, but they've actually split over these matters of opinion. And and that's just such a shame, isn't it? What a travesty. I, I remember hearing a sermon from a certain denominational pastor, and he said, I did some homework, and over the last hundred years, our particular denomination has spit at, they did it again, has split at least 60 times. Over all these small issues, should we use one single communion cup or a bunch of individual disposable communion cups? That was such a tragedy to hear this pastor saying, even in that one denomination, there were some 60 splits over piddly little matters of opinion. So often we climb on top of our moral high horses and we make the case that our opinion is so much more right and biblical than the next guy's opinion. And as Christians, we're really good at quoting a verse out of context to try to back up and undergird our argument, aren't we? We do it. Well, so often without even realizing it, we come across arrogant and condescending. And the message that gets conveyed is, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm spiritual and you're not spiritual. I'm a super good Christian and you suck at being a Christian. That's the message that's so often conveyed. When we dig in our heels, we don't listen. We don't speak sparingly. And we allow our anger to get the best of us. And don't consider that other person's point of view. Well, look at Philippians 2 with me. Verses 3 and 4, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you and I will believe these verses and hide these verses in our hearts and live out these verses, it will absolutely transform our arguments making them so much more healthy and edifying. Believe, really believe that the person you're arguing with is better at certain things than you are. Hold on to your hats for this one. Believe, really believe that that person you're speaking with and arguing with actually in some ways has better opinions than you do. Can you believe it? Believe it. Sometimes we speak with someone and we get cocky without even realizing it. That person you're speaking to has some valuable opinions. That person you're arguing with in some ways is smarter than you, in some ways is more talented than you. So listen to them. Learn from them. Understand their point of view. It's valuable. They are valuable. Sure, their point of view might sound really whacked at the time, but work hard to listen and wrap your mind around what they're saying. I bet you'll learn something. Finally, key number three. When both sides have validity, seek a wise compromise. Now, we're not really talking today about when the argument involves a matter where you cannot budge because the other person's opinion is immoral and goes against God. We can talk about that another time. We're talking today about engagements in particular, arguments and and, uh, debates with other Christians where it truly is not a sin matter, it's not a moral issue, it's not something where God is being stripped of his glory. It's simply a matter 
of differing views and opinions and perspectives. So when both sides have validity, seek a wise compromise. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.21 to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Moral compromise is sin. And so we're not talking about moral compromise today. But loving, submissive compromise is very Christ-like. During his ministry years, Jesus routinely sacrificed his own personal comforts and desires for the good of those around him. And he's calling us to do the same. Barnabas had a deep desire to give his nephew Mark a second chance. Paul had a deep desire to assemble a trustworthy, hardworking team of missionaries to do the best work possible because the stakes were so high. Both perspectives were valid. Both men made some great points. So if they had been living out these three keys, their knockdown, drag out argument could have turned out so much better. You see, both of them should have been quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Each should have worked harder to see and understand the other's point of view. And they should have seen that the other's point of view had validity and worked together to forge a compromise. There are umpteen different ways that Paul and Barnabas could have come to a compromise that glorified God and didn't result in them splitting ways permanently. But you know what? Despite their parting of ways, God still worked all things together for good, didn't he? But that doesn't mean their blow up here in Acts 15 didn't grieve his heart. And it doesn't mean it didn't cause any collateral damage. You see, toxic arguing among Christians usually does both. It grieves the heart of God and it causes collateral damage. That's what sin does. So often we engage in these debates and arguments and conflict with other Christians. And what we are arguing about is not a matter of sin and righteousness. But the way we engage in that argument is very sinful. Sometimes our argument is much more sinful than what we're arguing about because of the way we handle that disagreement. So often what we argue about is not sinful. But the way we handle the argument is sinful. And sin always causes damage. So let's honor God by handling our arguments and disagreements wisely, like Jesus, with humility, love, and a big helping of God's grace. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is one of those messages with a challenge that's easier said than done. Lord, when we get in the the heat of that argument, man, we just feel our veins and our forehead popping out and our necks getting tight and our back is stiffening up and we find our voice getting louder and we just want to shut that person down because we don't want to hear it. Sometimes what that person is saying, oh God, sometimes what that Christian brother or sister or even our spouse is saying just seems so far out in left field. It just seems so insane. It sounds ridiculous. How can we even compare my opinion with theirs? Mine is so much superior to theirs. Help us, Lord, to close our mouths and listen more. Help us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry in our marriages, 
in our relationships with our kids and parents, in our relationships with other family members, in our relationships at work, in our relationships at school, and by all means in our relationships at church with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us, O God, to look to understand each other and each other's point of view. Because, Lord, so often what that brother or sister in Christ is telling us has validity, an angle that we haven't looked at a problem from before. Help us, Lord, to consider others' needs as more important than our own. Help us to humble ourselves before each other and learn from each other and be changed by each other and be able to have a civil discourse where we come up with a compromise, O God, that is the best of both opinions, that somehow honors Jesus Christ, advances the cause, and brings glory to you without causing collateral damage. And Lord, in those other areas where compromising would result in moral compromise or going against your will, help us to stand firm. But Lord, give us the wisdom to discern one from the other what is Christian Christ-like compromise and what is moral sinful compromise. Help us to have the discernment to understand the difference and walk in obedience and make decisions, O God, and engage in conversations and debates that are drenched in wisdom and love and grace for the glory of God and the advancement of your kingdom, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, I want to urge you to make that decision today. You cannot make it to heaven without Christ. You cannot be forgiven without Christ. Obeying the Old Testament won't get you there. Going to church seven days a week won't get you there. The only one that will get you to heaven is Jesus Christ. And if you know you need Him and are ready to accept Him as Savior and Lord, we like to share the ABCs here at Impact. A, admit that you are a sinner and that you need the Savior, Jesus Christ. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and believe that He's your only hope of being forgiven and having a relationship with your Creator God. And C, choose to begin following him today. If you've made that decision, please reach out to us by phone. You can reach us at 760-246-4100. Or you can email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you today about that decision for Jesus Christ. Or if you have other prayer needs, we'd love to pray with you as well. If you've made that decision today, we'd also love to talk to you about getting baptized as soon as possible. Jesus said, be baptized, ASAP, to show the world you're serious about this decision to follow Christ. Well, we're so glad that all of you joined us today. For those of you that want to hang out for communion, we'll be doing that in just a moment. Uh, if you'll be checking out at this point, I just want to encourage you to continue to make a greater impact in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and in our church for Jesus Christ, because you were created for greater impact. God bless you as you serve our Lord this week.